You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Music Tectonics, the podcast that goes beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host for this episode, Tristra Neer Yeager, Chief Strategy Officer at Rock, Paper, Scissors, the music innovation PR firm. Today, our guest is David Turner. He may be known better to y'all as the writer and thinker behind Penny Fractions, a long-running newsletter tackling some of the thorniest economic sides of the music business. Turner has also written for a wide range of music magazines and music business trade outlets, and he's worked at SoundCloud. So he's got a really amazing perspective on what's going on in the music scene today. So David, thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to say thank you so much for having me today. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, I've been a huge admirer of Penny Fractions for years. And, um, you know, just getting to getting to chat in person is really exciting. So I, I'm really curious, though, how did you get into this crazy gig? How did you get so deep into music business thinking and, um, you know, in writing? What's this? Yeah. Thing? So, yeah. So actually to start, I originally sort of started as just like a blogger on Tumblr. I guess at this point it would have been 2010. I started a Tumblr blog mm-hmm. in my senior year of high school. Um, wow. And then I, yeah, so I started just writing about music for fun. I had a slight thought when I was a freshman in college, if I write on Tumblr enough, eventually someone at Pitchfork will read my stuff and then I'll get to write for Pitchfork, question mark, question mark, I'll have a career. <laughs> Somehow that actually, I guess, in some ways happened. Um, I'm The first review that I actually did was for Pitchfork back in early 2012. Mm-hmm. It was for a mixtape. And then I basically spent most of my college years sort of freelancing for Pitchfork, a number of sort of vice entities, Spin Magazine, a number of places. So I did that for a few years, got a few kind of um, both like part-time, then full-time roles. And then at some point, the reason, or I guess the shift that sort of happened with the music business side was in 2017, I was a full-time freelance um, music journalist. And I started realizing that sort of covering the biz side, especially coming from more of the sort of like reviews, interviews, sort of features, sort of more cultural side of, of the industry was kind of like a nice niche. And also because I had just been covering, especially viral trends at the time, I followed a lot of like Vine dance trends and things like that. And also like YouTube trends, following a lot of that stuff, I feel gave me kind of a slightly more unique insight into some different things that I was sort of seeing in more traditional music biz coverage, be it from Billboard, Music Business Worldwide, or Music Ally. So I just kind of started doing that a little like on the freelance side. And then eventually there were a couple of news stories that jumped at me that I wasn't able to sort of place anywhere. So I started a newsletter basically to try to cover things I was sort of seeing in the industry that I couldn't really find, like couldn't find a more natural home. And I started the newsletter, I think it was maybe October, November, 2017, and sort of been doing it ever since then. That's really cool. I love that you came from the more cultural slash creator economy side of music into the, uh, I don't know how we'd call it, the crazy, <laughs> the, the crazy, uh, mysterious, shadowy world of the of the music business side. Um, so we're going to talk about things mostly from that perspective, but I'm really hoping that we can touch on both of both sides of your of your brain, David, today. So I, you know, recently, I think it was back in April, you wrote a really interesting long post about the, let's, let's call them very complicated relationships between social media platforms and music. And this makes me think about also about how many, there's been so many attempts to make music social or to weave social elements into music platforms that haven't really gone that far or or haven't really taken off. Um, What's going on here? So why do social and music seem to want to be friends, but mix like oil and water? Yeah, so I think so. I guess there are a couple of different angles to sort of take 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 with that. So I guess for that newsletter, the thing that I was really sort of type talking about in that newsletter was more around the higher level licensing negotiations and sort of like what's sort of going on with sort of the relationship between major labels and TikTok, major labels and and um I guess Meta, i.e. Facebook, mm-hmm. Twitter, who I think who this is post my post, like post what I wrote, but recently are being sued by the National Music Publishers Association yeah. in, in the US. So just, I kind of wanted to try to unpack a little bit about what was sort of going on in, th- in those sort of more complicated ones. And then I'll, and then after this, and then I'll answer your more direct question around sort of like social media mm-hmm. and music and why those things have been kind of a little bit more frictive also over these, over these last couple of decades. So I guess like to what I wrote about, What I noticed probably around 2021, and I will say this is really also inspired by some some work that's been done by the Music Managers Forum out in the UK, where they had written some like sort of responses to some of the UK government inquiries, where they kept sort of poking at the fact that 
they never really understood where the money was going when like when um labels or publishers would sign these deals with social media companies they were just sort of like i see that they signed something but as a manager of these artists we're not seeing any of the money or if we're seeing the money it's very like obtuse and not really clear where the money is coming from and how much they actually feel they they should be owed that Mm -hmm. and so because of that i just kind of grew a little bit more interested in following that space one, because also I should have mentioned earlier, uh, my, my former role was at, I used to be at SoundCloud the last about four and a half years. Um, and so one of the things that I was doing as a strategy manager was sort of like being on the periphery of various licensing conversations. So like that was something that was always sort of like became of more of more interest to me the last I'm couple of years. I'm just like, sort of seeing you with your with your bowl of popcorn, just kind of watching. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I in some ways, yes. I, I definitely, frankly, I will say for most of my time at SoundCloud, every day was sort. Of, I always learned new things. That was like something that I took very much to heart and very much appreciated my time there. And definitely told folks, I've been telling folks since I, since I've left that like. Yeah, every day I learned something new. Even on the last day, I was learning something new, which I cannot say for every job that I've had. So I very so much appreciate that. So, but because of that, I was just sort of interested to sort of get a sense of like what was going on with these deals. Cause I would just read the press releases and they were like very vague and very like non, they didn't have a lot, a lot of meat to them. Mm-hmm. So I've written on this topic a couple of times over the last couple of years. For one point, I was saying how major labels, especially when UMG and Warner Music Group were going public, cited social media as one of their sort of potential sort of new growth, like sort of new areas of growth, where they figured, saw that they could make more money sort of licensing with these major companies and sort of saw that this could be something where they could see like stronger returns over the coming decade. And then as that was sort of happening, I also started noticing around, I guess it was this time last year, as social media companies were getting hit by sort of seeing their stock value, their stock valuations go down, you started seeing announcements of layoffs from like Facebook, Apple, Google, and like all of these different, not Apple, Apple is not announced layoffs, I'm sorry, Microsoft, and a number of these different companies, mm-hmm. Snapchat, I was like, ooh, I kind of wonder if you guys are like, making 20% cuts like you saw at Snapchat or however many like these deeper cuts are also hitting companies like Pinterest. Part of me couldn't help but wonder what's going to happen with these music licensing deals because it just struck me as like, if you're going to make cuts, it seems like music potentially could be pretty extraneous to what, what to, so, to certain companies' bottom lines. And so what I wrote in April was just basically re-examining that to be like, hey, what's been going on with this, some of this stuff and what, and are social media companies as devoted to music as they appear to be only 18 months ago in 2021. And what I sort of started piecing together was that it seemed that there was, there's been a slow walking back. So recently there was a big sort of tough, tuffle, like tuffle, tussle between <laughs> Facebook and some, and like some, uh, like some songwriter groups out in Italy yeah. where they basically took away a lot of music on um, like took away a lot of music in Italy if you were using Facebook or Instagram or any of their apps, and then eventually end up getting pushed by the Italian government to sort of reinstate a lot of that music. And there's sort of been a back and forth around that of, like of, of late. And I also noticed that Twitch similarly never actually signed like a properly like sort of licensing deal. They mm-hmm. just sort of said that they had like a marketing agreement or whatever, mm-hmm. which I kind of just inferred is they just paid Twitch a lot of money. No, sorry, Twitch paid those publishers mm-hmm. and whoever a lot of money and did not get something more like a traditional licensing deal that you may have seen for like a streaming service or even like an Instagram or Facebook. And so like, I just kind of started noticing these. And then I also noticed similar things happening with um, Triller, another very small short form media oh, like, yeah. um, music app they, they, that has been, they, been they had, love oh, to get yeah. in there. They love to get in there and, and, and fists a fly in with their, with their press statements, et cetera. Trillers. Yeah, they make very strong press statements. I think I, I really appreciated one where they basically told like Merlin, no one uses your music, no one cares about your content oh on our platform. <laughs> Which like, I actually think it's probably not untrue, but it's just certainly not something ever stated out loud or that aggressively. So yeah, so I just kind of wanted to write about that because it seemed like something that 18 months ago, you might have thought, oh, this is going to be one area of growth for the music industry writ large. That's going to be where folks are going to keep sort of investing more and seeing stronger returns. And right now that just looks a lot more fragile. So earlier I did mention sort of Twitter. So yeah, Twitter is being sued by the National Music Publishers Association. And I have just been keeping an eye like a hawk on every story that comes in Billboard that's about Twitter. Because I think when Elon Musk bought Twitter, there was an op-ed or two that I remember seeing where it was like, hey, is Twitter now going to start paying money 
to for like the music for the music on their platform now that they have a new ceo and i just laugh <laughs> just laugh because i'm like, like twitter, twitter is not pe- yeah like, right. twitter isn't oh sorry no i was just gonna say he's kind of going in the opposite direction there exactly yes like twitter one laid off more than half of their staff twitter is barely paying their like office bills they i think just announced like a new sort of deal with like google for like storage for like storage costs it's like they have no interest in actually trying to get like proper licensing deals like so good so i just basically could just sort of see the writing on the wall especially with some of these companies that are sort of struggling for money and are sort of like getting and feeling a lot more shareholder pressure that like ultimately mm-hmm. i don't think that they're going to be sort of like a strong strong sort of revenue source for, for the music industry going forward i think it like certainly isn't going to go away immediately or any like go away overnight but i don't think it's something where i was going to that too many too many chips on it at the moment. So why do you think there's this strange like everyone seems to think that music and and social media type activities should fit together really seamlessly, but like it, both the platforms seem to be saying, eh, music isn't really that big of a priority," and uh, users seem to be saying, "You know, we don't really, you know, I, I don't really know how to get social around music." Like it, it, it seems like there's a pro, like there's some strange thing here, and everyone assumes it should work, but it doesn't. Maybe maybe we're still caught in like a MySpace delusion. I don't know. Okay, yeah. So thank you for mentioning MySpace. So I think part of it kind of comes from that where it's like MySpace was one of the was like really like the first big like social media site. And because it was so sort of integrated with music, these two sort of seemingly are always operating like Mm -hmm. in, in simpatico. But it has been like a kind of fraud relationship over the years. I mean, if you think about MySpace, MySpace was really great for certain acts and certain and certain bands. But and but then you but eventually that ended up splintering as it moved over to Facebook, and then as Facebook eventually sort of changing up its own algorithm and how you were able to contact people, think people and artists or whoever who were able to build like some kind of following on Facebook saw that kind of start dwindling over over the years as Facebook started actually have charged more for some for to advertise and reach your potential audience and then it sort of moved over to instagram and then it's like moved over to maybe like at some points fine and tiktok it's like there's just all this kind of migration and movement mm-hmm. of people from the social media platform that i think makes it kind of hard to fully understand how music or musicians or marketers or whoever are supposed to sort of like integrate with them i think that's one of the reasons why there's been a spate of articles this year coming from Billboard about sort of the diminished value of TikTok, which I always kind of just assume was just going to be like, even if it was the case or wasn't the case, there was always going to be some set of sort of like backlash to this current paradigm, just mm-hmm. because people are going to, one, get kind of exhausted at, at sort of hitting their head against the wall, not being able to sort of crack the code for marketing on that particular platform. And also because it wasn't ever super clear to me that whatever is happening at TikTok is like sustainable and isn't just sort of the fact that TikTok got really popular during the pandemic. A lot of people moved over to it. Its audience was really big. Thus, if you were able to move something over on that on that platform, it had a much greater pull than whatever was happening on Instagram recently or whatever might be happening on Twitter mm-hmm. or Facebook or these like platforms that are basically at this point like peaking or already peaked in terms of user engagement. And you can't really sort of like find like any strong new audiences on on many of these platforms and now as i'm saying and i realize the last like three sentences i feel like i stole verbatim from like a manager i talked to (laughs) late last year who was just expressing like a lot of anxiety around how do i like even promote like a new record that they had coming out i said at this point it's already come out but it was like thinking about promotion for a new record they just kind of like at wit's end trying to understand like what platforms even make sense to do promotion in 2022 or twenty. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a lot of the people that have risen out of TikTok are more like they're culturally TikTok. They're not music uh, that, that has its own, you know, cross pat, cross platform uh, viability, so to speak. So they're, they're sort of an overfit for certain platforms um, and TikTok, especially because it has such a specific, length and, and the way people use it and the kind of sounds and the, the age of the, the users, um, you know, everything is kind of pushing things in a very specific sonic direction. It's very interesting. Um, yeah. 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 And I think that's part of the reason why I remember seeing that UMG, like, I, like put out a compilation, I think it was UMG, UMG, like put out a compilation, like sped up tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Which- night, there's like night, there's like a night core uh, industry takeover. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's definitely very fun. It's actually, it's funny, like for Nightcore too, because Nightcore is like a genre that I definitely like, remember was like a thing like a while ago and then has just always sort of lurked in the background. Uh-huh. And yes, yeah, more sped up songs sort of 
of like became a thing on have become a thing on TikTok, people realized, oh wait, there are people already kind of making this, this like particular kind of music a while ago. Um, but yeah, as far as like that sort of element of TikTok, I do think is is one that like I guess like I just always kind of could just sense was going to sort of burn people out. Like I remember when I was on the app, especially during the pandemic, I think I had like open TikTok pre-pandemic but then was on it a little more during the pandemic i could just sort of get a sense of when i would go through um profiles and i would see people just uploading two or three videos a day part of me was just like oh yeah this isn't sustainable Mm -hmm. like this just isn't like a thing that everyone is going to be able to sort of like as a creator orient yourself to because that's kind of a lot of content to sort of keep making and then like even as a consumer because I'm just sort of getting everything through my feed. It was like, I could kind of just sort of tell that this just didn't have like, I didn't feel like there were a lot of legs to it. It felt mm-hmm. very, it felt very like, tem- it felt very temporal, like yeah. even in the moment. And I feel like as time has sort of continued on, it's, yeah, to what to your point, it's that like stars or things that are, are artists that rise up via TikTok are super associated with the app or like basically maybe even a 20 or 30 second like snippet of a song. And that's like kind of hard to sort of, continue to sort of build outward and sort of build and sort of grow that like potential audience or potential sort of like people who are interested in that flashpoint or cultural moment or very specific cultural moment. Yeah. I I recently saw an interview or it was actually a memo from Mr. Beast's manager who says that they are at least, I mean, that's not surprising as as Mr. Beast built his brand on YouTube, but they are seeing way, way, way more traction still with longer form video. Um, And again, that that could be very specific to Mr. Beast. I can't believe I'm talking about him so much, but, um, (laughs) but that, you know, I thought that was super, a super interesting observation in that, even someone who is like a video native creator is like, I like longer form videos and they work better for my audience. So this like everyone's mileage may vary and it's hard to find the time and resources as a, as an artist or creator to test all these theories, right. Um, And hypotheses about where you're going to actually take off. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's one. And I think for YouTube, YouTube is what is a platform that over time started favoring longer form content and started like moving in that direction. In fact, I want to say, at this point, maybe like seven or eight years ago, started mm-hmm. really like pushing the algorithm in, in, the, in that manner. Mm-hmm. One, just because it makes for better a, a better ad experience. And then also for creators, potentially it does sort of make it a little clear like what it is sort of demanded from you. Like mm-hmm. one thing with short form video is that is like it really does feel pretty like random as to like what it is that's like connecting with people or at least if you like produce something that's like a little bit longer you have a little clearer sense of like what it is that may or may not be kind of working there and i mean and i say that that may be my own bias i just kind of like have i i prefer things where i can engage with it a little deeper than sort of like the truncated like 70 seconds sort of like explanation of something and i'm like oh man you could have given me a few more minutes right like minutes instead of just like yeah thousands of seconds <laughs> amazing so we're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back with a completely different topic so stay tuned dimitri here we interrupt this podcast with this breaking news alert Actually, the news cycle of the music industry and innovation in particular is accelerating at such a fast pace that there are several breaking announcements. So many, we can't fit them all into this news break. That's why I launched Rock Paper Scanner, a free newsletter you can get in your inbox every Friday morning. Check out bit.ly slash rpscanner. I scan hundreds of outlets for you from the music trades to the tech blogs, from the music gear mags to lifestyle outlets, so you don't have to. I handpick everything music tech including industry revenue numbers, AI, cool new user tools, the live music landscape, recording landscape, partnerships, acquisitions, everything else a Music Tectonics podcast listener would want to know. Open a browser right now and punch in bit.ly slash rpscanner and sign up right now. Go ahead, hit pause and go to bit.ly slash rpscanner or find this episode's blog post on musictectonics.com and find that link. Happy scanning! Uh, but for now, happy listening. We're back. Okay. I've been wanting to ask you about this for quite some time, David. This is sort of your jam. I mean, you've had a lot of great commentary on 
streaming services and payouts and the pro rata system. And I'm wondering um, now you've, you know, you've kind of been in, I don't know if you've been directly in the trenches, but I know you've been involved with some attempts at places like SoundCloud to reconsider the payout distribution system or, you know, how royalties are calculated based on usage. And, you know, I'm just really curious to hear your perspective on where we are now. What are these different what do these different sort of models mean? Do you think things are actually changing or are we just like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? Um, you know, what and what what would we need to do to create a more equitable system or maybe a system that produces the outcome that a lot of us in music want, which is lots of successful artists making amazing music? What do you think? Yeah, so I yeah, so I've been in so I've been in this space for a second in terms of just sort of thinking about it, and I'm so thankful that in my time at SoundCloud, I got to work with um, Michael Felchinski, um, who was able to actually sort of come up with what eventually was termed the fan powered royalty yep. model. And like, been on our podcast recently, so check that out, folks, if you want to hear more about Mike's perspective. Anyway, go back. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, so that, that yeah, so Michael, my former boss. So yeah, I always have to give him give him a, a great mention. Um, so I would say one of the things that I sort of taken away the last couple years is one i think that the change of the model from the pro i well i guess to take one step back i do think the, the model will change i think how much it changes and sort of like how much change happens over the next decade i think is probably the bigger question to me at this point and the reason i say that is because it seems to me that based on the fact that universal music that um, universal music group has announced actually has announced that they're working with Tidal, working with Deezer, and I think Bloomberg recent reporter are also working with SoundCloud mm-hmm. on trying to look at re- adjusting the model. Kind of just sort of says outright that yeah, something is going to change. If UMG says they want it to change. Everyone eventually is going to be coming in line w- with that. Now, what that actually ultimately ends up looking like, I think that's kind of where the fun can be sort of had, and I think probably what we're going to probably discuss here going forward. So. I would say the what I saw at SoundCloud and what I was able to sort of experience with the fan powered royalty model was really exciting. One that it's possible to change the model without it seemingly taking a thousand different like nerds on, on like on, on at typewriters <laughs> to do, which I feel like was the conversation a few years ago. A few years ago, the conversation seemed to basically be like, "It's so complicated. It's impossible to do. Like, there's no way we can do this change of how we pay out pay out royalties." And now. No one says that anymore, thankfully, because we did it like we, I mean, at SoundCloud, it was done at SoundCloud. We know Deezer was sort of working on it. We know UMG is right now working with multiple streaming services to figure out new models. We've seen the new CEO of Warner Music Group, who came from YouTube, also say that it's possible to try out new models. So it seems that that idea of it being too complicated or something that is just like too much of a lift is like behind us now thankfully so we can now start looking for the more exciting part of what is that actually enough looking like and what is it that we want to i think towards your final to your final point about like something that is more equitable for artists so i think the pro the um vampire royalty model or what or what is sometimes termed the user-centric model i still am a pretty big fan of it i mean unsurprisingly i was like i worked on a team that worked on it mm-hmm. i still am a pretty big fan of it i think it does one, it addresses many issues around fraud. It does just sort of intuit. It does make more sense intuitively to fans that the music that they consume, that the money that they're paying goes to the music to the to the music they consume. That's pretty easy to understand. And I think like most of the critiques that I've seen pop up a little bit more lately, that is just sort of like tinkering on the edges. And what needs to be done is that we need to sort of just grow the pot rather than sort of worry about how the pot is allocated. To me, I just don't really agree with that because. Yes, increasing the size of the pot and how much money gets in there mm-hmm. is, an, is a concern. And we could talk maybe a little bit more about that later is like yeah. that's its own separate concern. But to me, it's still about like how, like how the pot gets divided ultimately. It's like if all of a sudden revenue doubled, but if you were still like an artist that's still like in the system feeling like you're only going to be seeing like a very negligible increase, even though the overall revenue doubled, then I still think that's kind of the main issue is how a lot of this money ends up being allocated. And now folks have pointed out, they're like, oh, well, user-centric doesn't solve this for everything. And I'm like, well, of course it doesn't. It's not, it's like one model. It's like one economic model is not going to be the end-all be-all here. It's like yeah. in many ways, just one part, one spoke, especially in music of, of all industries where folks understand you have the recordings, you have publishing, you have merchandise, you have live, you have all that you all of these different, and then also I'm not even getting into like radio, like pay from radio, internet, like there's 
all these different ways of being paid for your work in music that the one streaming, that the one royalty model attached to the recorded side of the music industry is not going to be the end all be all that saves everything. I don't think anyone will believe that. But to me, like throwing that aside and saying that it doesn't really matter, that's not a, a big deal to me. Like to, I, I just don't ever really get that. And I think that the model that was proposed and it's been enacted at SoundCloud and licensed with Warner Music Group in, in Merlin is a really exciting first step. And I hope that if there's more progress, that it, that folk can sort of build on and sort of learn from what has already been done and that maybe there's more outside the box thinking that can be done. I mean, that's something that in my newsletter prior to Fan Proud Royalties even being, I think, even term, it's something I've written about a number of times because I do think there is like a number of like other ways and sort of cooler ways of sort of thinking through this, this topic. Yeah. I and mean, one of the key critiques is that, well, people still aren't getting paid very much. And some, you know, I, I kind of often want to go back and I know this is probably like me shaking my my scrawny old fist at people and just being like, well, musicians have never been paid well. <laughs> Yeah. Not that we want to keep that. I mean, we and we can talk in a minute about, you know, collective action and ways we could improve the lot of creative people in general. But a lot of musicians have lived very, very poorly for, you know, basically since we have recorded history. So Mm. I'm always a little bit shocked when I when people don't realize that. And there's a strange, almost like golden age thinking based on the, you know, the anomaly of the post-war um, you know, economic boom in the U.S. at least, yeah. you know, and, and that which sort of culminated in the grand sort of the, the crazy banquet that was the CD era when there was just a lot of money flowing around. Um, but still there were like thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, you know, making music and maybe even doing something vaguely commercial with it who never made much money. Um, and those, but those people weren't visible because we didn't have usage data like we do now. Yes. Um, and, and so in some ways it, it seems like we're asking the wrong questions sometimes, or we're framing the argument a little bit, uh, ahistorically, which keeps us from really understanding what we could do to help the people who are real, you know, musicians with great audiences, with amazing music, who maybe are in slightly less commercial genres. So they're not going to have the like marketing juggernaut behind them, or they can't go viral on TikTok because they're playing like 12 minute jazz suites. Right. Um, and, but those folks I think are, are, are like the prime, not, not jazz per se, but like those kind of musicians are the ones we should be looking at going like, huh, how could we make this work better for them? I don't know. That's my personal opinion. How do you think about this? Yeah, so I guess I sometimes think about this even per just like thinking of different genres, how different genres over the years have interacted with some of the different changes in technology the last the last couple of decades. So I think of so right now, like the biggest album this year is more is more is, is on the latest album by Morgan Wallen. Yeah, yeah, that was um, interesting to see that a country like I think both like the number one and number two are both countries country songs this yeah. yeah and then also there's been a really um I for, i'm forgetting I, I for, oh my gosh there's a um regional a quote-unquote regional mexican artist mm-hmm. um peso i'm forgetting his last name of, of, of him but he um has like had like a couple really massive hits yeah. this year so it's been kind of interesting sort of seeing slightly more re- like what are thought to be more like niche genres suddenly like just basically dominating the billboard charts and i think part of that is because country as a genre one was slow to like move over to digital sales it was very strong in cds for a while and then was slower to move on to streaming and now this sort of come into streaming it's sort of like become a lot more dominant and i think that's interesting to me similar to like like certain genres of electronic music sort of made the transition to digital pretty early mm-hmm. and thus have always kind of been and thus like i remember reading a story that was talking about beatport like an, an electronic music um, digital store where they've seen their sales increase over the last few years compared to sort of the overall energy trend of decreasing digital sales yeah, yeah, yeah. and i think part and i think part of that is because people actually like djs actually buy mp3s to use mm-hmm. and they actually buy those files to use as like an actual profession for their actual profession not just as a listening not just as something to listen to music which i think is something that kind of got lost as we moved to your point from cd but even more particularly like vinyl over over to cds over to down over to downloads over to streaming at that the form the music the form of music itself 
exactly was able to sort of have different lives to it beyond just sort of this one of, commer- of commercialized listening. And I think that's something that's certainly been forgotten like o- over the last couple of decades. Yeah, that's such a great point. And that makes me think, for instance, at Music Biz, I went randomly to a panel where um, someone from Amazon brought up that one of the most common requests to Alexa that's music related is just like, play me Outlaw Country, you know full stop. And Alexa has to know what that is and like what the artists are that fit into that category, etc. Um, and I just thought that was so, so interesting that country request, like that country music listeners really love to use Alexa and voice <laughs> to, to, to call up just like a playlist or, or, or some kind of, um, you know, subgenre within country. And I think that goes to your point in that, you know, the hardware, the, the, the hardware around the use of this digital music file is, really important. And in some ways that can determine the whole ecosystem of how, how these, these songs are used, how people are going to buy them, how people are going to listen to them or find out about them. It's super interesting. And and there's like a lot more thinking to be done in that regard. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is something that is very noticeable to me just because I, I guess I I always find it like a, a little bit funny how I, when there was a really big push a couple of years ago around NFTs and mm-hmm. sort of conversations around that, I always just found it a little curious because I was just like, but like, I have MP3s that are like 20, not 20. Actually, hold on. Yeah, probably getting close to 20 <laughs> you years are old, that maybe. old. You are that old. Yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, but it's like, oh, yeah, I have MP3s and I have like mixed like recordings of like mixes and stuff. Yeah, all from like the two th- from the two thousands, and I'm like, those still work, and they still have value to me. And actually, they have infinite, not infinitely, but they have significantly more value to me than whatever NFT you're about to try to sell me on, because I can like one, I've had these things for a long time, but one, I can copy it, transfer it, play it through my phone, play it through like all these sort of different contexts, and it actually has like a lot of like that, like actual value that I can in in, in uses to the particular format that I don't really see, that I wasn't seeing in those NFT, certain NFT products at the time. And that just always kind of stuck with me. And I think kind of made me a little bit more like appreciative of the MP3, but then also started getting me to think a little bit more about like, yeah, so like when things were all still vinyl and when things were just CD, just like what other forms that these, like these, like what other forms this stuff could sort of take and what other use cases were sort of abound in those particular moments and how that spurred other kinds of creativity thinking of DJing and sort of thinking of sort of that about of those kinds of cultures that you don't really get when everything is just sort of streamed mm-hmm. and things feel so kind of amorphous and so kind of sort of vague and you don't really have the same level of sort of control over the over the music itself in a way. Well, this is really, really fascinating. We're going to take another quick little break and we'll be right back. Is your startup a narwhal? Applications are now open for Music Tectonics Swimming with Narwhals startup pitch competition. Apply at musictectonics.com by August 8th, 2023. That's also where you'll find eligibility requirements, a timeline, and some helpful FAQs. Forget unicorns and shark tanks, apply to Swimming with Narwhals, and join Music Tectonics community of music innovators. You could be one of four finalists in the spotlight at Music Tectonics' fifth annual conference, October 24th through 26th in Santa Monica, California. It's the place to be for music innovation startups, whether or not you reach the finals. We'll have a startup carousel demo day on the Santa Monica Pier. Panels and networking with everyone you need to meet, from investors to labels, and a very special startup boot camp at the Universal Music Group offices. Come swim with the Narwhals, apply at musictectonics.com, get your conference badge, and meet us in California. Okay, we're back. And David, I have one more big question for you. This is a doozy. And this is something that um, I you discuss sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly in your newsletter, it's a topic I don't hear discussed a lot um, in sort of the more mainstream music business press, but I think it's really important. And that is the role of organizing. So there's been a musician's union for, what is it, like at least a century, right? In the yeah. US and probably uh, longer or, you know, maybe slightly shorter in other countries. But um, there, you know, and they at one point they had a really big role to play in shaping music technology. If I'm thinking about a, a strike after 
I think it was after World War II, there were some yeah. major strikes that really changed the game for how music was paid for and distributed, et cetera. Right now, we're in a really new, interesting era of of labor organizing around digital media. This has happened mostly in journalism, but we're also seeing, for instance, pushback from um, writers in Hollywood and some other, you know, even in games, there's now starting to be more organizing and collective action. What's going on in music from your perspective? Um, do you see any future in collective organizing for artists or producers or somebody else, I mean, you know, this might actually address some of the questions that some people have and some of the critiques about payout levels and we're not getting enough and these artists need to have more, um, more support or we need to make artist careers more sustainable. I mean, do you think collective action might be a solution? How do you thinking about that whole thing? If you think about it at all? <laughs> oh yeah, I think about this all. The, yeah, I think, definitely think about this all the time, and it's something I've talked, yeah, attacked more directly and definitely sort of interspersed indirectly throughout my newsletter over the years. So one of the things that I think is interesting, especially I think as you're sort of hinting at right now, is actually. I think you can actually get a good, really good sense of sort of the differences between industries and sort of like how how the artists or workers within those industries are sort of situated at the moment. So I think over the last couple of years, there have been a couple of very small like um, unions that have actually just formed in the music industry. There's like the Secretly Group Unionized, Bandcamp Unionized. Mm-hmm. That's right. And yeah, so like, and I think it's interesting to kind of look at what those unions were sort of like of those particular ones. So you secretly, yeah, so you have like sort of a distributor sort of label and which it's like a... That one, I think it's interesting because there just aren't that many examples of sort of unionized sort of labels in, in, that, in that way, which I think is, it's like stems a lot from the sort of the passion of the, in, like the industry be very much like a passion, passion, bleh, passion driven industry. Yeah. And it being one where like folks are sort of understanding that, hey, I know I'm not going to make a lot of money. I could be making more money doing X, Y, Z with my talents, but I just love music so much. So I think that's like definitely part of it. Similar with Bandcamp, I think that there's like part of it there, but also Bandcamp with Fop by Epic Games. So I think there is sort of a slight connection, like slight connection to that, even though like uh, w- with the workers there. But for the musicians themselves, I think one of the issues and I think you can kind of sort of see this even when you compare it to what's going on with the writers, the writers, the ongoing writers guild strike right now, is that it's much clearer the relationship between the writers and sort of the digital platforms or sort of companies than it is for musicians. Because for a writer, they are working on scripts. Those shows are being put out by either um, Hollywood, Hollywood Studios or Netflix or an Amazon. They kind of have the scripts. You have the production. You have the actors. You have the directors. You have like all these different parts that are actually all unionized and are sort of all sort of working together to produce this particular product. In music, it's much more diffuse and much less clear the relationships between all of those different actors and um, all those different, yeah, all those different actors and all those sort of different moving parts. So you've seen sort of different groups sort of emerge over the last few years. Some of them are like songwriters. So like songwriters mm-hmm. end up sort of finding a, ra- a lot around sort of songwriting and copyrights around songwriting, which is different than group than sort of other groups who I've seen who are formed who are much more like classical musicians who have sort of a different sort of set of interests that they are sort of looking at which vary from a group like the the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, mm-hmm. where a lot of those musicians are come from more indie rock kind of backgrounds. So thus themselves also have a slightly different interest than maybe uh, a group like the Music Workers Alliance, which is a newer group that I think started in New York, New York City, but is again, more like classically, like more classical focused musicians or like the American Federation of Musicians, which still exists, which is again, more classical sort of like orchestra, like orchestras, like all of them are like slightly different interests and are also all sort of like poking at slightly different things. So in some instances, it's like, yeah, like if you're a classical musician, it's like you may just have like a broader issue with just sort of the YouTube and just a broader issue with just sort of how 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 that kind of sort of works and just sort of having your music online that you didn't sort of account for and don't want on there versus artists who are just more like combative towards Spotify and the streaming platform for just not paying out enough on like a per stream basis. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's kind of to say that all these demands to me are like, most of them I like don't like really have like a big issue with. It's like if, he, if people want Spotify to pay more, that's totally fine. Spotify doesn't really make money, but they also have such absurd expenses yeah. as they do on marketing, salaries, and all this other kind of stuff that they can easily pay for it. I think some of the smaller platforms, just to be very honest, it's like I don't think some of them could probably pay for it. Yeah. Like I don't think like, Title doesn't really make money, and like Title's not like 
that huge of a company. So, like, I feel like there are probably some demands that are replaced on, like, a title, for instance, probably, or, like, a teaser, probably, like, just sort of, like, crush it under the weight of it, which, that's a different combo. That's also probably a slightly different combo. But yeah. for the bigger ones, I think they could totally sort of, like, make do with it. But to actually, to probably, to speed up the combo of, like, how is that going and how you sort of make that happen, I think that's where the where the rubber hitting the road had been a little bit more complicated. I don't think it's been fully like fully like understood because you can make these demands on the platforms, but unless you have some way to sort of get leverage on them, they can just kind of ignore the demands or to sort of talk around them or to sort of like maybe, for instance, I guess you could sort of point to. I know I said it earlier before we started that I wasn't going to mention the copyright royalty board, but I guess I'll mention the copyright royalty board for two seconds. Um, <laughs> but it's like the copyright royalty board has actually, for the last couple sort of go-rounds, been a little bit more friendly towards songwriters and paying out more. And I actually do think that a lot of that comes from organizing that's been happening, mm-hmm. right, directed at the CRB by a number of different musicians, songwriters, and then, like, a couple of other sort of folks, like, going on right now where it's like, oh, yeah, they realize if they can sort of keep poking at the CRB, they can actually enact some changes and do, and do work around that. So that's, like, something that I see actually producing some change. But, again, it's, like, sometimes you feel on the margins. It does not feel quite as direct as what you sort of see right now with the ongoing writer's strike where, like, if the writers are on strike, that actually sort of, like, really messes with the sort of the actual production of Hollywood where it's much harder to get like a one for one comparison of that in the music mm-hmm. industry when there are just so many different actors and everyone is kind of like their own sort of active in their own little nodes within the industry as it's currently constituted. Yeah, it's hard to imagine what what like a unified action would be that would have the same impact as the writer strike. You know, there's even even if all independent musicians decided to pull their music from Spotify for a day or whatever, however that would work. Um, You'd still have just tons of stuff up there that's, you know, the labels and, you know, other major labels. And, you know, I don't even know how that would, anyway, doesn't mean it's impossible, but it is, it it is a very, very different situation. You're, you're right. The pipeline is way more dispersed. Yeah. And I think because of the way, the, the, the way that everything is so dispersed, it also sort of makes it hard for me increasingly to get a full understanding of like, what is to me like an ideal outcome from this, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Just because it's sort of like, I, it's like, I, it's like, yes, I think musicians should get paid. But then it's like, when I say musician, do I mean like the copyright owner of the recording or the copyright owner of the, of like the songwriting? It's like, yeah. who am I talking about here? <laughs> Cause those might be different people. And sometimes they've actually like competing interests. And then also depending on who, like who they're writing for, they may, it just, it's just much, it, it just gets much more muddied and a lot more like confusing to me in a way that I sometimes increasingly do have like kind of a harder time like sort of figuring out the like, here's like the, I'm giving this a massive thumbs up. I think this is like all good or all bad kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's sometimes the binary that makes it a lot easier to like yell at Spotify, <laughs> even though part of me is kind of like, yeah, like they're at fault here, but major labels because I remember reading, like recently reading this from like a UK report, it's like major labels are still paid out better on a per string basis than indies or self-releasing artists. Mm-hmm. So like there's obviously something happening at the level of licensing negotiation between major labels and then everyone else with streaming services that's at play here. And I think that's why when the UK government put out, like have put out the reports recently on sort of the state of streaming, they end up sort of having these like really incisive, like really like incisive reports that are really good at understanding all the different ins and outs, but they don't really come to many like actual strong conclusions. And now I think like some of that, I think is some of it's just like, they don't want to like sort of like upset the apple cart and they are like, want to keep things sort of like, not get too extreme with some of the recommendations. But I also think part of it is because it may not actually be immediately clear, like, what is the issue? I think this is why they recently sort of had a whole big thing around metadata. Like, we're mm-hmm. like, we need, like, clear standards for metadata, which is pretty, like, inoffensive and, like, something that everyone can kind of rally behind, but also isn't something where it's, like, immediately clear, like, if we solve all the metadata issues, what does that kind of do? And I guess like to my final point on that, a similar one is stuff around like the MLC in the mm-hmm. United States. And a lot of like, there's a lot of like chatter around the black box and like the hundreds of millions of dollars that have not been properly allocated from like 
there in the like from the Music Modernization Act and mm-hmm. how that's been going the last five or so years. And part of me just always, and I will hopefully write a newsletter on this later this year. It's like I always think about like the black box where like just even the idea. It's like how could there be hundreds of millions of dollars that are not being properly allocated that eventually are just going to get reallocated by via market share back to sort of like the major rights holders? And part of me kind of wants to go like, okay. If there are hundreds of millions of dollars that were not properly allocated by the system and no one was able to figure it out, be it the rights holders or the DSP, that money should not be going back into those systems. It's like, <laughs> that's just kind it, of back. Yeah. yeah, it's like, you can't tell me that it's like, oh, I go on, it's like, I go to the store and then I like, I go like go buy, I, I go to the store, I go buy something, but I accidentally break, break some stuff. And then it's like, oh, well, don't worry about it. When we end up actually sort of like accruing the bill over the broken goods, we're actually just going to reimburse the people that bought the most. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, wait, that doesn't really make a ton of sense here. It's like, shouldn't think, like shouldn't yeah. that money at least not be going to those who already are just paying the most out anyway? I mean, that analogy doesn't quite make full sense. No, I'm sort of I saying it again, saying. But like, it, it's just kind of a strange sort of way of, of how that stuff gets, gets allocated right now. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the difficulties of the historically unmatched royalty sort of bucket has been a lot of it is like the rights just aren't clear. Because um, people want to, I mean, no one wants to hold on to like, uh, you know, millions of dollars, just, just, well, maybe some people do, but like the, uh, the MLC really doesn't have a ton of incentive no. to sit on it. And it's not great for their, um, I mean, they'd love to get it paid out, but it's like, they don't know who this stuff belongs to, which is just, you know, I know that's hard. It, it, it's easy to believe when you're, when you like are in the weeds, like some, like you are, and like some of, some of the folks we work with are. But man, it's kind of hard for when a layperson comes to the situation. They're like, "You really don't know who wrote that song? <laughs> like, how is that possible in this day and age?" Um, and yet it is. So it just really points to how insane um, this industry is in terms of complexity, and how it, I mean, it's wonderful we have all these folks, these you know, folks who may have you know just a couple songs out there, or may have written one or two hits, or may just be an independent, self-published, self-released artist that has other stuff on Spotify and never bought to do any metadata paperwork anything um registrations and and you know this is that's just sort of the nature of the beast it's which very very different from say hollywood right you can't there's very oh, few films yeah. like we have no idea who made this film yeah <laughs> no i mean I, you know yeah it's like it's one of the reasons why i like i i sort of get a little exhausted like a, a little exhausted when i do think about that exact thing you're sort of mentioning about the idea of someone just sort of like uploading their stuff yeah. and then all of a sudden maybe happening to go viral or something sort of going, but none of the stuff was like sort of like yeah. metadata is not quite right. It's just like, and there are like a number of companies who sort of are making it their sort of raison d'etre to one, either like collect a lot of that, try to like mm-hmm. be somewhere hoovering up the, that money that may or be out there or reaching out to those songwriters to try to get them to like actually get properly paid for some of that from, from DSPs. And like, that's, whatever those are their businesses that's what they're trying to do but like part of me just can't help but sort of wonder not wonder but just like feel that this is just going to only get worse over oh, really? can only get more complicated and more harder to sort of like understand harder to understand and parse not less as more platforms emerge if there are new ways to monetize music and and to go back to sort of like that previous point i was talking about social media it's like oh, if you have all these sort of massive like deal with these large social media companies and yeah, you're like someone who are like, yeah, maybe this is one of the reasons why certain companies don't even want to try to get into two deals that are too complicated because they don't want to have to deal with any of this stuff. They just want to write the check that says they aren't going to get sued and have the music just sort of exist up there. They aren't trying to figure out how we can properly pay out mm-hmm. to the independent songwriters or to those self-published art- artists who may or may not like find success on their, or like via their platform. Yeah, it's, no, I, I don't want to depress you and I don't want to end on a, on a melancholy, yeah, yeah. A melancholy meta, metadata note here. So let's talk for just one more minute, David, yeah. about what, what music tech are you excited about? What stuff is, I know NFTs, you're kind of like, Neh. kind of, maybe it's a nothing burger. Um, but what is out there that like gets you excited? You're like, yeah, that'll be cool. Once that really gets going, that's going to be amazing. Cool. Okay. Well, it's funny because I'm about to say it's kind of, it's sort of like the inverse. It's sort of the, I guess, more optimistic inverse what we were just talking about. <laughs> I do find like, so I do find like companies that, well, one, I will say any company that is trying to parse and understand this stuff, I I, I kind of want to give a big tip of the hat to yeah, them. Yeah, they just, just because of it, coffee or a donut or something. 
Yeah, because this is really complicated, but it's also something that's not going away. It's something that's also going to only sort of intensify. So any company that is really trying to get better at matching data, like matching data, trying to do better about synthesizing all this kind of all this kind of information, like bigger, like I have a lot of respect for them. And I'm like, I'm very appreciative of like trying to get that work done because someone kind of has to do it ultimately, because otherwise it's just kind of going to like. It's just going to, the money will just keep sitting in that black box and people aren't going to be able to actually get access to it, which is not what we want either. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a, a lot of appreciation for, for folks who are thinking in that space. Um, but I guess like the thing that is probably of a little bit more interest to me, but in a similar vein are companies. And I, actually, um, I guess I could mention this was, this is an, in a, in a company that does an NFT product was, um, I remember like this company sound, um, sound.xyz, they mm-hmm. had like a mix they put out, maybe it was like a year ago or a year, like 18 months ago where they had it. So everyone in the mix will get prop will get like some amount of payout for like the sale of that NFT, of that sort of NFT mix project. And they sort of like split it out by like, however many artists were like songs were mentioned in that mix or mm-hmm. like included in that mix and then split it out like that. I know there's a company splice that's been trying to do that more on sort of the DJ side mm-hmm. that I think is really cool. Like, I think those initiatives and projects are like really interesting. And again, sort of to me, what I think you can probably see a through line here for miners of that and fan powered royalties where it's like, People may again go like, well, why do I care if I get like paid a half a penny from this one DJ mix that's out there? And it's like, well, one, that mix may or may not actually end up like ha- reaching hundreds of thousands of people. Again, I would mention, think, I think of last year, Fred again, in his boiler mm-hmm. room set, which got, I think at this point, like well over like 10, 15 million views on YouTube. Yeah. It's like, hey, I assume you probably, you're an artist that was featured in a couple of those, like in that mix or some of his other really popular mixes that he did with Skrillex and Fortet mm-hmm. over the last year. I'm sure you definitely would like to sort of get paid out and at least get some better recognition for that. So again, I think that there's, when I see like companies, when I see like companies that are still trying to figure out that those kinds of questions, that's like really exciting to me because I mean YouTube exists and has their content ID system, but that's just one, and there could probably be a lot more sort of making and a lot more work sort of done in, done in that space. So that's something that like definitely excites me, and I think is is one where I'm like personally, especially as I'm no longer like no longer at SoundCloud and sort of looking at my next steps, I'm definitely going to be keeping an, an ever closer eye on some of those projects because I think. They also fly a bit under the radar, especially right now when there's a lot of hype around like AI and other yeah. stuff. I'm like, yeah. oh, well, I'm always like a little bit more interested in anyone that's sort of moving money. That's like trying to figure out allocation of money because I'm like, oh, well, if it's an AI song or if it's not an AI song, someone's going to have to get paid out for it eventually. And if we are still using all the same sort of rusty pipe we've been using the last century, I'll be kind of interested to know who's trying to fix those. because oh, yeah. That's probably going to matter a little bit more rather than if the song is made by a person or not a person that's a different conversation people can figure that out but in the day end of the day people are going to need to get checks and how those checks end up getting paid out is probably where i'm always a little bit more curious yeah i i agree this is that's going to be a very very interesting question and um you know bless the folks who are gonna solve it hopefully well david thank you so much for your time this has been a lot of fun and we covered a lot of ground and and this was exactly the conversation I was hoping to have. So thanks so much for for joining us. I'm going to say thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know we do free monthly online events that you, our lovely podcast listeners, can join? Find out more at musictectonics.com. And while you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. Everything we do explores the seismic shifts that shake up music and technology, the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. That's my favorite platform. Connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it. We'll be back again next week, if not sooner. You're listening to Music Tectonics.